0: Um, hello everyone, I best introduce myself then, so my name is Luke, I lead OH1, um, also on the leadership team, so I've been in Loughborough since 2012, so I've been here a fair bit now. So it's great, what a great community to be a part of. Um, right, we are, could you actually, show of hands, who was either here or has listened back to Richard's talk, just so I've got a bit of a gauge of how, oh decent chunk. That's really helpful. Great. Okay, so um, I want you to turn to Revelation 1 verses 9 to 20, please. Um, You'll find that in one of these. These are really, really good. They're Bibles. Um, So open that up. Try at the end, Revelation um, if you don't have a physical Bible, use your journal if you've got one of them. If you don't have that, then maybe use your phone. Put up, pop it in aeroplane mode. Just helpful, isn't it? And then if you don't have that, it is on the screen as a last resort. But these things don't give you notifications. So ask quality. Anyway, so if you find yourself in Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20... And I want you to find a little partner, or a big partner, find yourself a partner. Um, It can be somebody you're sat next to, or behind you, or in front of you. So pick your partners. Eyeball the people that you wanna partner with. Because I don't wanna do all the work for you. So I want you guys to read the passage. So what's gonna happen is, whoever's going first, you're gonna read the passage out. Whoever's gonna go second, you're gonna read the passage out second. The reason we're doing this is. A, at the start of Revelation, it says, blessed to those who hear this. So we want to be blessed by the word of God. So we want to hear it. But also, Revelation is quite an interesting book. Um, and there's some interesting words used and interesting language. So it's really helpful for us to get used to our mouths using certain words and descriptions um, because that's really helpful for, if our mouths can get it, if our mouths can get around the words, then our heads can, then our hearts can, and then our souls. So, first person, hands up here, you go, who's first? Great, it takes about two minutes to read through, so two minutes to read through first time, and then swap over, and then read it through the second time with a new person. It is, Revelation 1, verses nine to 20. (laughs) I see this. Okay, that's two minutes, if you haven't swapped already, swap around, up the pace if you need to. We'll have another two minutes. Okay, that should be enough time, I reckon. If not, don't worry. we will go through it again keep I'd, I'd recommend keeping that open. Um, I'm going to sort of be I'm basically just going to go through the passage as it comes. Um, sometimes I'll go quite quick, sometimes I'll be lingering and going quite slow, so do keep it open in front of you um, so you can follow along basically um Before I properly get into it, just a bit of a heads up in terms of Revelation. There's some really good, like, helpful resources out there. If you're one of those who haven't caught last week's, I think Jess said it, would recommend because Rich did a brilliant job, didn't he, at sort of framing the whole Revelation, uh, the book of Revelation, which will really serve us well in all future talks as well. So I might be doing a bit of referring back to, but because there were so many hands in the air, I'm going to assume that most of you know most of what Rich covered last week. Um, Another thing, if you want a bit of a deeper dive into Revelation, this is a great book that has formed a lot of this series. Uh, It's called Discipleship on the Edge by Daryl Johnson. It's quite thick, it's quite big, and the font's quite small, so there's a lot in there but if you do want like a deep dive into revelation this is f- fantastic actually uh, the bible project their videos are great aren't they um, whack them into youtube if you don't really know about bible project do these amazing overview videos and really really helpful they actually have two for revelation which again just frame the book and give it into context and explain things that might be a little bit confusing at first but makes it um a little bit more understandable and lastly small groups is like the best place to be there like flipping out what was luke all about um, what did you think or oh, this is what god was speaking to me through this passage like could you help me with that small groups are the place for it so um anyway that's that a bit of housekeeping a uh, bit of a quick recap on Richard's talk just because it is helpful um, Revelation, last book of the Bible. It's actually a letter. It's a, it's a pastoral letter. It's a prophetic letter, and it's also a pop, an apocalyptic letter. Um, which, if you remember from last week, we need to make sure that we don't think, "Oh, egg. end of the world, scary times, apocalypse." That wasn't the purpose. the The original word apocalypse actually means to reveal, an unveiling. Um, breaking through from hiddenness so rich said last week that actually when people hear the apocalypse they're like great things are being revealed this is something to celebrate not something to be scared of so that's good to just understand whenever we say that it's in the context of revealing and who has been revealed well what has been revealed is jesus jesus is being revealed it's the revelation of jesus christ so that's a little bit of context around um, revelation for us And then we jump into verse 9, and we get introduced to John, who is the author of this letter. Um, He's writing this letter from Patmos, which is a Greek island. I think we've got a map up there. I'm quite far away from the screen. I could point in OH2. Patmos, right, It's sort of bottom left. It's the tiny little island. It's a Greek island, and that is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. Oh, there you go, on your Right. A bit of a Google maps. It takes forty seven hours in the car, um, or a seven hours twenty flight. What do you mean that's not right? Well, I'm guessing it takes into consideration public transport, I think, Piers. <laughs> and through security. That'll that'll you'll take that long to get there, Piers, I'll tell you that. Anyway, it's £385 as well, so you can test it out for his peers. <laughs> anyway, that's where Patmos is, and it's actually a prison island of the Roman Empire. So in AD 81, the emperor at the time, Emperor Domitian, he orders the whole Roman Empire to bow down and worship him as Domine et Deus, which means Lord and God. And um, everybody has to go to the temple in his honour. Um, take some incense, take a pinch of incense, throw it in the fire and declare that Caesar is Lord. And it's highly likely that John is in prison in his mid-80s because he refuses this, this edict, this law. He refuses it. Because Jesus says, doesn't he, to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God's. And John's there like, I ain't giving Caesar nothing that I give to God. So that's why he's there. Um, nothing that it deserves to, for God. So that's why he's in prison. That's why he's in exile. And it turns actually from a place of exile to a place of revelation for him. And interestingly, John actually gives a reasoning for why he's there. And his reasoning of why he's imprisoned is because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's the reason that John gives for why he is there. And there's absolutely loads um, of stuff in Revelation that will jump out at us. And this is one of those things that really jumped out at me. This little sentence, this little reason that John gives of why he's on Patmos. He found himself there because of the word of God. It's the scriptures, it's the everlasting truths, it's the words of life in this book which leads him to Patmos. That's why he's there. It led him to persecution, to exile, but also to the revelation of Jesus. And it challenges me, it challenges me because I've been asking myself, like, where am I because of the word of God? Where am I because of the word of God? Where am I in am I in greater levels of freedom because of the word of God? Do I live in hope because of the word of God? Do I do what I do because of the word of God? Do I say what I say because of the word of God? Do I end up being in the spirit because of the word of God? And it's, it's a really interesting one. Well, I found it not interesting, quite challenging of pondering, where do I end up? Because the word of God has to lead us somewhere. So where does it lead us? It led John to Patmos. Um, verse 10 Rich last week described Revelation as almost like a drama being played out in front of John. So verse 10 is sort of like the curtain first being drawn, and it says, "On the day, on the Lord's day, I was I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet." So I'm going to go through this passage. And with Revelation, everything means something. (laughs) Everything means something. There's symbolism. It represents different things. So I'm sort of just going to go through all what that means a little bit, which is interesting, but also end where this passage ends as well. So first thing, a trumpet. A trumpet is an instrument, and it calls people into battle and into worship. And it also announces the arrival of the living God. That is what a trumpet signifies in all of the Old Testament scriptures. A battle, worship, or the arrival of the living God. On the weekend away. (laughs) So when John hears this trumpet, he's there like, gosh, there's a battle. There's worship. Or it's the arrival of the living God. That's what's happening. Then we're introduced to the seven churches um, of Revelation. We have Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theotira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. If we can have the map up again, actually, just give you a bit of reference of where they all are. Um, there they are, on the left, in the bold. And... Um, these, Ephesus will have been probably like the bigger of the churches, sort of like the city of Ephesus was a region. And then all the others might have been like smaller, I guess like church plants potentially out of that. But John, he's it's believed that this is the same John, the Apostle John um, who wrote the gospel. Um, he was overseeing all these seven churches. So he has this attachment with them and oversight with them. And why are these churches... Well, these ch- churches are at the forefront of John's mind because he's on Patmos, on this island, he's been arrested, and he's just, his heart is like, oh, blooming out. how are the churches doing? How are they getting on? I found myself here because of worshipping God. I wonder how they're doing. Praying for them, I'm sure. Petitioning, seeding of like, God help them, God help them. I can sort of imagine him on Patmos on like a beach while he's in prison. So maybe like looking out of a window or something like that. And looking towards the mainland and being like, poof, what is going on? So that's the forefront of his mind and heart. And remember the significance of numbers in apocalyptic writing. Um, They all have meaning. And seven represents completeness and perfection. And there's plenty of sevens in Revelation. And um, therefore these churches not only represent those seven churches in present time, but because it's perfect in completeness, they're actually representing churches across the whole of history. Every single church ever, including us now and those that will come after us. So yes, it's a letter to those seven churches, but it is also a letter to us. Verse 12 Um, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. John turned around. Again, a a reminder that he's not just dreaming. He's not just having this vision, but this drama, as Rich put it, is being played out in front of him. In fact, it's playing out behind him because he has to turn around. (laughs) He has to turn around. This is like, he's seeing these things as John. He has to turn around to see the voice that was speaking to him. And the lampstands, how many are there? There's seven. Remember, completeness and perfection. And right in... Among them, some translations say right in the middle. I prefer that translation, to be honest. Right in the middle of these lampstands. We know later on that these represent the seven churches. That's the final few verses of this passage. Right there in the middle is the voice, the one like the Son of Man. Right in the middle. Jesus isn't just on the edge. He's not above. He's not at some distance. He's not behind. He's right in the middle exactly where jesus is supposed to be right in the middle of the church right in the middle of these seven churches right in the middle of church capital c of a whole history that is where john is seeing the son of man right in the middle of his church and in the original audience i guess for those who receive this letter but also anybody who maybe is in this room who is really good at the old testament you'll be thinking, ah, this sounds familiar. This sounds a bit like Daniel. And it does. Daniel 7, um, verses 13 to 14, it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So, similar language, similar things. And Jesus, it's Jesus as the Son of Man, meaning Old Testament Son of Man was like the first of man, like humanness. And then Jesus came, didn't he? And he says, I am the Son of Man, capital S, capital M. Signifying that he is the son of God, he is like the top, he is the first, he is the ultimate man. But also the son of man indicates his godness as well, his majesty. So John is seeing Jesus, son of man, fully man, fully God. And he's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. I love these references. By the way, I, I'm, I'm totally just, I've just been seeped in this for a few weeks. So I'm not like a Revelation scholar. Maybe you can tell. But like, just like you know. But I've been finding this stuff absolutely fascinating. So the long robes that go down to the feet, this was actually the garment that the priest would wear. Um, amongst the Israelites, so those who were, who were called as priests, they would wear this robe. Therefore, if it 's Jesus wearing this robe that goes down to the feet, it's Jesus saying, "I am the high priest. That is how he is revealing himself to John. I am the high priest, the great high priest. And um, the priests, they would do certain tasks. they were involved with the sacrifices, the offerings. The, the blessings, they would go into the Holy of Holies. And then in Leviticus, it was shared at OH2 this morning, that they actually, um, at one point, the glory of God came to the whole community because they sort of opened things up, which is great. So with all of that, Jesus is saying, I am that, but even better, I am absolutely, I'm making absolute fulfillment of this priesthood. I am that high priest, of that I am the ultimate sacrifice, I am the ultimate offering, I am the ultimate blessing that I bestow on you, on us right now as well. And the glory of God as well comes along. And then the sash around the, the, the chest, this is this is well interesting. So sash, belt, it's golden. It, it looks absolutely lovely. It's not just a fashion statement, but there's a reason why it's around the chest. So apparently when a sash or belt is around the waist... It signifies um, work, that you are working, that you're doing a task. But because the sash is around the chest, what that means is you wear the chest when the work is done, when the work is finished. So John, I mean, that blew my mind, guys, to be honest. The work is finished. John sees Jesus with his sash, his lovely golden sash, around his chest because the work is finished. The victory is done. He's done everything that he needs doing as Jesus. And he sees him. Work's done. Work is done. I'm wearing my sash around my chest. I loved that to be honest. But did anybody else? I think that's I think that's wicked. Anyway. <laughs> um, then we come across the seven descriptions. Are, are you sort of keeping up with me? I'm going at a bit of a pace. It's a lot of meanings and representation, but the whole point of this is sort of well we'll get to that actually so we are in verse 14 I believe so we come to the descriptions of Jesus' features and how many are there? there is seven completeness and perfection and again it's John driving home this point of like this is perfect this is Jesus in absolute completeness and then he describes everything like something else so we've got like wool, like blazing fire, like bronze, like the sound of rushing waters, like the sun shining. And yes, the symbolism, we'll come on to that, but it's also because John just doesn't have the words to be able to describe what he's seeing and what is revealed before him. He has to sort of say that things are like this because actually it's way better than this, but I, can, I can't really describe it, so it's a bit like wool. I think it's probably better than wool, but John's like, it's just, I don't know what it is. It's like wool, but I can't really describe it. And we'll go through them, shall we? I think we've got a nice little table Um, that might help us. It might not be super clear. I can share these around afterwards if that's helpful. Um, So let's have a look at these in a bit of detail. The hair on his head was like wool, white like wool, as white as snow. White represents sinlessness, purity. White hair is a sign of wisdom, and it connects to the idea of the Ancient of Days that Daniel spoke of in that earlier passage. Um, His eyes were like blazing fire. Blazing fires purify. They burn up all the impurities and only leave only the best of the best. And the fact that it's Jesus' eyes... um, Gives us the idea that is what Jesus sees that purifies. It's almost as if like Jesus is seeing right through John, or like he's, he can see these these blazing eyes can see right through us and burns up the things. How often do we sort of hide behind those sort of masks and those facades and versions of ourselves, not our, that aren't truly ourselves, but Jesus, is there, like, I've got blazing fiery eyes, so I can see right through that. I can see truly who you are. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And um, it's maybe helpful to think about this in terms of statues. So like any ruler in history of any great deal of power, one thing to show off their power is they build all these statues and they're standing in these statues. And um, they're, they're sort of stood on their feet to rule. But... How often is it that the first thing to fall when these powers are tumbled is the statues? They're the first things to come round. So the fact that Jesus' feet are like bronze, it tells us really that Jesus is strong. He's unmovable. And it also shows us of his ability to overcome any opposition. Nothing will come against him. He's unmovable. And then his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Think waterfalls doesn't even have to be a big waterfall. If you've been next to a small waterfall, if you get close enough, it drowns out every other noise, doesn't it? Like you just can't hear anything. So the fact that Jesus' voice is like the sound of rushing waters, you can't hear anything else. It drowns out all the other noise. It drowns out all the other voices. Jesus' voice drowns out all the other voices. Isn't that amazing? But at the same time, waterfalls can be a really peaceful place as well, can't they? So there's absolutely, shed loads of symbolism in this. I'm going really quick. I'm going really quick. I'm sorry. In his right hand, he holds the seven stars. And in this first century, when this was written, it's likely that this would have referred to the seven planets that across that area, people believed to hold the power um, and the rulership, essentially like the universe this symbolizes. And no matter how massive the universe is, no matter how big it is, like I don't, I'm really don't, I can't get my head around it. But Jesus holding these seven stars in one hand, by the way, not both. So that song of He's got the whole world in his hands is incorrect. It's hand. He doesn't even need both hands. He's just got it in one. Again, it just it's Jesus saying, I am absolutely ruler of the cosmos, of the whole universe. I've got it in one hand. That is my bigness to you, John. That's what's happened. That's the bigness of me to you. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. It's actually believed that this isn't actually like a super long sword. It's a bit of a short sword. I don't really know how, you know, I, I don't know why people think that. But it's helpful to know because it sort of shapes quite a different picture. It's a short, short blade. So it means you have to get quite up close and personal. So the fact that this short sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth, it's as if he's sort of going in and trying just to cut away at sort of the things that are playing on our mind and soul. A bit like a trowel, sort of digging out the stuff to get it out. Cuts through the lies that we believe, cuts through the lies that come to us and the nonsense of our lives that we live in. And then his face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. And this suggests to us that Jesus, who is in our midst, radiates with the glory of God. His face shines upon us. Remember in lockdown when the blessing was doing the rounds like nobody's business? Of his face shining upon us. That is what's happening here. That's how John sees Jesus. That's how Jesus is choosing to reveal himself to John saying, you know this blessing of the Old Testament. This is me. My face shines upon you that you might shine upon for others. And not might, but will. That's the promise. Like, you will join in with the shining on others. So that's a few of the meanings. There's a few references as well of like, you know, similar sort of imagery in Scripture. Another thing, very quickly... A um, little bit geeky, so bear with me, but I think this really drives home the point, and you'll get, you'll get a better understanding of that. So there's a literary device known as a chiasm, chiasm. Yep, getting a nod from L's, lovely. So rather than something being read in like a linear fashion, in like a list of like one, two, three, four, five, six that we've got here, it actually looks more like a sideways V, which I think, we've got a slide Yes, OH2, it was all scrambled. So, <laughs> so I had to sort of describe a sideways V and it was a bit complicated. This is way more helpful. So this is how it would have been like written and also heard to the reader. There's examples of this everywhere in scripture. But the reason for this is rather than it being a list and maybe the end point is the point, you'll see that right in the middle, the thing that is actually the literal point of this sideways V is his voice. The voice of Jesus is the point. And it's really interesting in this this sort of literary technique that John is saying, like, look at the point. The point is the voice of Christ, the one that caused him to turn around in the first place. John actually turned to see the voice. How often do you see a voice? How cool is that? He turned to see the voice. Um, Anyway, so this is how it would have been written and understood. But also there's these like pairings as well. I'll quickly geek out on that. Eugene Peterson helps um, sort of make sense of that a little bit. He pairs these and describes them as, uh, so the head and the face, so number one and seven, um, they're the first and last impressions. The eyes and the mouth, they go together. Because they are the organs of relationships. And the hands and feet both go together because they express capability. So it's a bit of like, it's interesting. It's a bit like literary stuff, isn't it? But the point is, the voice is the literal point. It's the voice of Jesus that is the point of all this. Okay, verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. I mean, can you blame the guy? That's quite a, that's quite an out there picture that he's just seen, and he falls at his feet as though dead. What a, what was like a vision? What a picture! And it's a similar response to Ezekiel and Daniel in their writings of when they see Jesus and when they see visions of his glory. Their response is to fall down as if dead. And it's really easy to think sometimes, isn't it, with, with Jesus, that we, we want to limit Jesus to our own sort of comfortable understanding. We sort of love the soft and gentle and peaceful side of Jesus, which he absolutely is. But that doesn't really cause us to fall down on our feet as if dead. So this whole revealing of Jesus to John is showing John, this is actually also me. All of that sort of imagery and picture and those blazing eyes, the bronze feet, the, um, the, 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 the face shining like the sun and all, it's brilliant. It's like, this is also me. Like, that is who I am. That is what I am like. Yes, I'm soft and gentle, but also I'm absolutely mighty. And I hold everything in one hand. So, so John responds in such a way that is probably quite um, apt after seeing such things. So I think there's a bit of a challenge there of how often do we sort of keep Jesus on a lead and be there like, stay as I want you to Stay. Stay in the sort of comfortable, manageable Jesus rather than the boom, wow, All, like awesome Jesus who makes us fall down as if dead. Incredible. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, the same right hand that was holding the universe, these seven stars, that same right hand comes and touches John on his shoulder Joe and Dan, when they were reading, Joe was reenacting the hand on the shoulder. But isn't that incredible? Like this is Jesus who holds the vastness, the absolute vastness of the universe, but also is super intimate and personal that he'd put his hand on John's shoulder. The same hand. It's remarkable. This is this is Jesus. And I love the order of events that happen in this passage. It's I saw him. I fell, he touched, he said. I saw him, I fell, he touched, he said. And I think that changes how we approach Jesus, doesn't it? And how quick are we to sort of rush to that? What are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying? I sort of want answers to prayers. I want to meet with you. So what are you saying to me? Well, I want to be touched by your spirit, God. I want to sort of be filled with you again. But actually... It's interesting that John saw first, then he fell, then he was touched, and then he heard what Jesus was saying. Maybe that's how Jesus operates. In fact, we know what Jesus wants. He then says it in the following verses. He actually says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the key of death and Hades. This is what Jesus says. This is what the voice says. So before that, it's just everything that John has seen. And that's always a good question to ask with this series of Revelation. And as we read Revelation is what does John see? Not what do we see, but what does John see? And this is the first thing that Jesus says, is do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the key of death and Hades. So before everything else that comes in Revelation, all the more imagery that is a bit confusing and we'll dive into that. Before any of that, he tells John, do not be afraid. In fact, there's two commands. It's do not be afraid and look. They're the two commands that he gives to John. Do not be afraid and look. Other translations say behold. That's what John is asking. That's what Jesus is asking of John in this revealing. Daryl Johnson, the author of that big book, um, he says this. It turns out that we obey the first. This is in, um, in relation to... The two commands of "do not be afraid" and "look." I turn out—it turns out that we obey the first by obeying the second. It's when we look that we're no longer afraid. When I am afraid, it's because I'm not looking, or as I should say, I'm not looking in the right place. I'm looking at all the cultural factors, all the political factors, at the rise of militant terrorism, at the escalating collapse of moral order, at the growth of addiction. But I am not looking at Jesus. I'm not looking at the risen and ascended Lord of life. Look, says Jesus to John in the, on the prison island. Look, I was dead, but look, I am alive forevermore. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, but you've got to look at me. And Jesus doesn't caveat this either. He doesn't say, look, but if you're feeling a bit stressed at the moment, it's all right. He doesn't say look, but actually if you're not quite feeling yourself today, well, that's okay as well. He's not saying look, but if you don't feel worthy, if you feel shame, or if you don't even fully understand everything, well, that's all right. There are no caveats. Jesus actually says the opposite. It's the opposite. Jesus says, if you're stressed, if you're busy and stressed, don't be afraid and look at me. If you're not quite feeling yourself, if you're feeling low or if you're feeling anxious, don't be afraid, look at me. If you do fall short, if you do feel a bit of shame and guilt, don't be afraid, look at me. Because all those things, what happens is that they, they imprison us, and it leads to death. And Jesus is there saying, don't be afraid, look at me. And what what is he doing? He's holding the keys of death and Hades. That is what he's holding it. I sort of imagine Jesus sort of like spinning it around his finger on like a key chain of like, yeah, I've got the keys. I've got the keys to death and Hades. So all of that stuff of like that leads us to death. And when I say death, it's... It's sort of, remember Paul's writing on things that lead us to death of like, whether it's sin or whether it's just things of the flesh, things of the world, whether it's stress, whether it's whatever, not even things that are always under our control, all that stuff leads to death. But Jesus is there like, well, I've got the keys to death. It's all right. Do not be afraid. Look at me. I've got the keys to death. Do not be afraid. I've got the keys to death. Do not be afraid of your current circumstances Look to me. This is the point. Remember the point of the V was the voice. Therefore, what does the voice say? Do not be afraid. Look at me. So um, I've wrapped up really. So if, if Ben, do you want to come up? With this series of Revelation, we might find ourselves repeating things quite a lot. I don't think there's a bad thing in that, to be honest. Um, the passage that we looked at last week, well, it crossed over into this week as well. The Revelation first came when John was in the Spirit, i.e. when he was worshipping. So I think we'll find ourselves responding to the Word through worship, because that's what John modelled and that's what... Um, that is how the revelation of Jesus came about Um, I might invite everybody to stand if you're able actually as well so we've we've covered quite a bit there and, and at quite a pace um, and there's a lot, but I think there is something in that first sentence of what Jesus speaks to John, that there is an invitation for us to receive that command afresh again, of do not be afraid, and look, and um, there's, there is, the reason God and Jesus and angels always say, "Don't be afraid." In Scripture, is because God knows that there's always something to be afraid of. There's always something to be afraid of. That's why God says, "Don't be afraid," because He knows that all of us are afraid of something, and that might be, you know, big things. That might be small things. We might not even maybe use that language of of being afraid, but it might be fear, or it might be anxiety, it might be confusion, you know. And God says, "Don't be that." not because he doesn't understand gosh he understands and there's a lot to be afraid of it's been another really sad sad set of news headlines this week hasn't it so there's plenty to be afraid of and Jesus doesn't say don't be afraid because I'm ignoring that ignore that and just look at me no he's saying I know all of that is happening but don't be afraid by it look at me So I wonder, in in this time of worship, that isn't just to fill the last quarter of an hour of our gathering, but is to properly engage with the Spirit and with the Word, is for us to maybe consider, what is there in my life that I am fearful of? Is there those fears? Do I need to hear that command from Christ, that invitation from Christ to not to be afraid and to look again? maybe for some of us it is maybe going to that second one of looking, maybe we need to look afresh at Jesus maybe we need to see Jesus as he fully is, maybe not just in what we've experienced but actually what we see in the truth of scripture and to see him maybe even for the first time as well, we might have been following Jesus for a long time but never actually seen him Um, Just this morning, I, I was getting a sense of, yeah, I think today actually could be a bit of a start of a journey for people in seeing Jesus for the first time. But I felt like Jesus was challenging me and saying, Luke, I can do better than that. I can do better than just starting the journey. I can reveal myself to people. Don't stop putting me in a box. I can reveal myself to people. So I've got real faith this afternoon that Jesus might want to reveal himself to people, maybe in a way that he did with John, who knows, but to reveal who he truly is.